You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. Today, the persecution of Christians in India can sometimes be traced to economic reasons. As can the persecution of Christian leaders by local mafia bosses and terrorist groups. As the spread of Christianity continues to threaten their economic climate and they're mad. The true solution lies not in changing the economic system, but in changing the heart of man through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the solution to the problem heart transplant. Money can be an idol in the heart of man. Today, Pastor Dave describes how the world's greed can hinder the spreading of the gospel. Our hearts are evil, and the lone remedy is a heart transplant. The only way our world will learn to give value to what truly matters is by letting the power of God's Word transform our hearts. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 16 as he continues his message, The Gospel versus Greed. Today, the church is spending all sorts of efforts in church growth programs like how to increase your attendance. Many are studying psychology and sociology and making demographic studies of communities and determining what will appeal to the people of this particular community. They tell you what type of advertising program will be most effective, taking polls and census and putting everything together so that we can have a church growth program because we want to add so many numbers to our church. You can get professionals to come in, and in all they do are these studies, and for a fee, they'll go ahead and develop your whole program. There are other professionals who tell you what you need, and they'll take your money, and they'll give you these fundraising programs. The early church didn't know any of that. The early church didn't do any of that. The early church met together. They studied the Word of God. They broke bread. They fellowshiped, and they prayed. Sound familiar? Acts 2.42. That's what they did. They did that on a regular basis. And then on Acts 2.47 it says, and the Lord added to the church those who would be saved. You might sit there right now be thinking to yourself, oh, come on, Dave, times are different now, are they? Has our God changed? God's hand's not short that he can't save? Or his ear heavy? No. But many people no longer rely on God. They no longer rely on the Holy Spirit. We seek men's devices and men's ways. We look at the world to solve a spiritual problem, as I said. We've forsaken the Word of God, and we go into entertaining programs. We have tried to attract people with lavish program of entertainment. Come and be entertained. I'm sorry if you're here for entertainment. The motto cry of this church is, come and meet Jesus. Come and meet Jesus Christ. That's the cry that we cry, because our battle cry is the cross, and you meet Jesus Christ at the cross. That's where salvation is. That's where eternal life begins, at the cross, and that's where we meet Jesus Christ, and that's the battle cry of this church. See, it's the Word of God that changes hearts. It's the Word of God that changes lives. 
Sword of God that brings people to salvation, not entertainment. To have salvation, people have to meet Jesus Christ. Paul cast out that demon in the name of Jesus Christ. He cast out the demon in Jesus' authority, not on his own. Why did Paul wait so long? Why did he put up with this woman constantly at him for such a long time? Well, many believe that he was waiting for the authority of the Holy Spirit to do it. He was waiting on the Holy Spirit to move. Can you imagine what happened to this girl when the demon left her? Can you imagine what she felt when the chains of bondage were taken away from her? Can you imagine the joy in her heart when she realized she was no longer a slave but free in Jesus Christ? Man, her heart must have soared because she was in a sorrowful, pitiful state. Her life was under the control of a demon and under the control of men who could care less about her. To them, she was their gravy train. They didn't care about her. All they cared about was the money that she produced. And when Paul stepped in and threw the demon out, guess what? The money stopped. The chains were broken. She was free. God worked a miracle in her life. She was free. We're not told this, but it is assumed that after the girl received Christ, she became a member of the church at Lydia's house. It's not written there, but it's greatly assumed by all the scholars. Anyhow, the demon is cast out. The owners of the girl are now upset because they've lost their gravy train, as I said. Scripture tells us that the fortune-telling brought them much profit. In other words, they got a lot of money from her fortune-telling, and now they don't have the income because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She provided their income so that we have a battle set. Battle lines are drawn. On one hand, you have an economic system, greed of man. And on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a classic battle. We've already studied about this a couple times. Remember the real estate deal gone bad for Ananias and Sapphira <laughs> in Acts 5, 1 through 11? Remember Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the Holy Spirit? In Acts 8, we studied that. And coming up, there's going to be another big contention in Ephesus, and there's a riot over the fact that they no longer are selling these silver shrines for the goddess Diana because the gospel message is coming in to the community, and it causes a riot. Finally, in Acts 20, Paul talks to the Ephesian elders about the fact that he never took any money from them. Worked for nothing. Made tents on the side. The gospel message coming against an economic system. Do you know this happened in 1516? This happened in 1516 when the economic system of a church came against the gospel message. A man named Johann Tensel was a Dominican friar and a papal commissioner for indulgences. He was sent to Germany by Roman Catholic church people to sell indulgences to rebuild St. Peter and Paul's Basilica in Rome. Roman Catholic theology stated that faith alone, whether it was fiduciary or dogmatic, cannot justify a man. Justification, according to the Catholic Church, rather depends only on such faith that is inactive in charity and good works. That's the only way man can be justified. The benefits of good work can be obtained by donating money or buying indulgences from the church. And the more indulgences you bought, the better off you were with God. Buy more indulgences. Well, man stood up to that. A monk, by the way, Catholic monk, on October 31st, October of 1517, 
This man, Martin Luther, wrote a letter to the bishop protesting the sale of these indulgences. He enclosed in the letter a copy of his disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences, which became known as the 95 Thesis. The 95 Thesis that he nailed to the wall of the monastery. Hans Hildebrand writes that Luther had no intention of confronting the church, but saw that his disputation as a scholarly objection to the church practices. And the tone of his writing, according, was searching. He was just searching for the truth rather than trying to come up with doctrine. Hildebrand also writes that, um, unfortunately, nevertheless, there was an undercurrent and challenge in several areas, particularly in several parts of the thesis. It's particularly in Thesis 86, Luther wrote, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Craxus, build a basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? I can see where that might tend to make the Pope mad. Luther insisted that since forgiveness was God's alone to grant, those who claimed that indulgences absolved buyers from all punishments and granted them salvation were in error. Christians, he said, must not be slack in following Christ on account of such false assurances. On June 15, 1520, the Pope warned Luther in a directive that he could face excommunication because of what he was saying. That autumn, this declaration of Luther's excommunication was published and announced in all the squares. Luther never backed down. Instead, he sends the Pope a copy of a, something called On a Freedom of a Christian in October. And the Pope publicly set it on fire. And so therefore, Luther set the Pope's directive on fire publicly. And Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Where does it end? Where does the greed and the want for money end? It appears that the gospel got in the way of the Catholic Church's need for money. It appears that there was a miscommunication there because of what they believe and what they wanted, the money from these people. This battle still rages today in all parts of the world. When we get back to our study, the owners had no concern for this girl. All they wanted to do was the money she made. And that's what greed does. Greed helps you to have no concern for people, no concern for things, no concern for your fellow man. Greed is a horrible thing. They wanted to strike back and get even. They wanted their gravy train back. Very, very similar to the liquor store owners in London who were offended by the Salvation Army. They're preaching temperance. You know, temperance makes people stop drinking and bar owners no longer have people to serve. In fact, the results that happened to Paul and Barnabas were exactly the same that happened in London. Beatings and trials. Let's finish up 19 through 24. But when her master saw that their hope and profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace of the authorities. And they brought them into the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful to us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Right off the bat, we see false charges, along with racial innuendos being thrown at the group. Paul and Silas are taking the brunt of all this. Why? Why do you think Paul and Silas are taking the brunt of this? Because they're Jews. Timothy was a half-Jew, remember? And Luke, he was a Gentile. So you only read about Paul and Silas being brought before the magistrates. 
Satan's attacking in a different way. He's back to outward persecution. Let's get the town folks mad at these missionaries. That'll stop the gospel from going forth. They caught Paul and Silas and put them in the marketplace in front of the rulers. This is where they held their trials then back in the Greek times. They, they held them in cities in front of magistrates. They held them in the square. Note the trump-up charges. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. There's a bad charge. Now here are the racial innuendos. They were playing to the anti-Semitism of the crowd. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was filled with retired Romans, retired Roman soldiers. And seeing that these men were Jewish, this gave them an advantage in the courts and the, and the crowd. I mean, even the magistrates were not Jewish. They were Roman. So often, we are judged on our religious beliefs. And so often, we judge on racial backgrounds. Not a pleasant thing when that happens. But according to what I read, we're all equal in the eyes of the Lord. We're all one. We said this in this forum before. There's never any cause for looking at someone differently. Never a cause. The world is so quick to judge by what they perceive. When we stand up for God, we're called intolerant. You stand up for God in your place, you're called intolerant. And you might even be called a hater when you stand up for righteousness in your place. So easily we're condemned. And the world does the same thing as these people. They don't investigate much of what we believe. They just condemn us because of what we say, what, we, what they hear us say, or what they think we say, or what they think we stand for. Because the term Christian means a lot of things in a lot of circles. But you know what? Even in Christian circles, it's easy to damage a brother or a sister when they don't agree with you. It's easy to damage somebody when you don't believe in the way they worship or like the way they worship. I mean, the Pentecostals think Calvary Chapel are infants because we don't emphasize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They think we're immature because we don't emphasize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe that we've seen them practice and stuff, but that's not our emphasis. Our emphasis is the Word of God. But some Pentecostals think we're immature because of that. There are some denominations who think Calvary Chapel is very, very liberal. Why? Because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not legalists. Why do groups tag each other like that? Why do groups tag each other? We're all one under our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They said they teach customs that are not lawful to us because we're Romans. What was their charge? Disturbing the peace. That was what they were charged with. And great care was taken from the Athenians and the Romans that no one should introduce a new religion. They didn't want a new religion being introduced. In fact, if you look at your history, Socrates was condemned because they thought he was introducing a new religion. In fact, Cicero says this in Rome, No person shall have any separate gods, nor new ones, nor shall he privately worship any strange gods unless they be publicly allowed. So they didn't want new gods coming into their Roman system. So these men were pleading against Paul and Silas. They were accused of bringing in new gods, which was not approved. The verdict? Guilty. The punishment? Beaten with rods. Ow. That stings just to think about it. I'm sure they probably received 40 lashes minus one for mercy. Now Paul writes that he was beaten many times, and, and when he's talking to the church of Corinth, he talks about being beaten. Probably this is one of the time. Add insult to injury, they're thrown into jail. They tell the jailer, make sure they don't get away. Watch them securely. He, doing what he's told, takes them down to the lowermost prison and puts them in stocks. Not bad enough that they're in prison chain, now they're in stocks. Okay, disciple, what do you do? What do you do next, disciple? 
Well, if you're like me, you're probably crying like a little girl and whimpering that you're in that mess. But not these guys. I have to come back next week to find out what happens next. As I've said, and I quoted R. Kent Hughes, wherever the preaching of the gospel touches the economic structures of the powers that be, opposition is bound to come. Today, the persecution of Christians in India can sometimes be traced to economic reasons, as can the persecution of Christian leaders by local mafia bosses and terrorist groups as the spread of Christianity continues to threaten their economic climate, and they're mad. The true solution lies not in changing the economic system, but in changing the heart of man through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the solution to the problem. A heart transplant, like we spoke about last week. Greediness in the gospel is not a good match. Greediness for money and gospel is not a good match. In fact, greed is an inappropriate attitude toward things of value. It's built on the mistaken judgment that my well-being is tied to the sum of my possession. Man with the most toys wins. Greed is more than a mistaken belief as knowing a few facts would somehow solve the problem. Greed also involves emotions like longing, unfulfillment, and fear. And attitudes like, I'm entitled to this, or rivalry, I have more than you have. Greed alienates us from God. Greed alienates us from our neighbors. They got a new car? Hon, let's get a new car. Greed alienates us from them. And greed alienates us from our own true self. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, his son, later on, and he warns them about the temptations of money and greed. We're going to close here. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, and it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's quite a statement. I'm sure you've all heard that before, haven't you? How many of you go around saying, money is the root of all evil? It's not correct. That's a misquote. Money is not evil, necessarily. It has its purpose. The love of money is the root of all evil. It says those that desire to be rich, this is significantly, because the desire for riches is far more dangerous than riches themselves. It isn't only the poor who desire to be rich, but the rich want to be more rich. Greed becomes a terrible taskmaster. You can never get enough and you always need more. I don't care what it is that you have, you always want more. This can mean possessions. It can mean power. It can mean title, position. It doesn't have to mean money. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jesus gets right at the heart of the issue. Lose your soul. You can have all the riches you want. I know you've heard this. Ever see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it? No. Those who desire to be rich, Paul say, fall into temptation and snare. The desire for riches tempt our heart away from eternal riches and ensnares us into a trap that very, very few can escape. Always dreaming of riches. Always, always setting the hearts to get the riches. 
that, let that lottery get up to a couple hundred million and see the lines. Hey, every once in a while I buy a ticket. People are in line wanting to buy that lottery ticket, man, because their dreams, their hopes, everything is on that. When we have such riches that are eternal, we studied in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3 of what we have in Christ Jesus and the riches we have through Him and Him alone. Riches that money will never buy. Riches that money will never give you or get. Riches that only come through salvation in Jesus Christ. It says they pierce themselves through many sorrows, and this is the fate of those who live in the love of money. They're not satisfied. We sometimes want the opportunity to find out what riches can satisfy. Lord, I know money can't buy everything, but I'd sure like to buy a little. We want it. But we should trust the Word of God. We should trust Christ to be our provider. Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. God provides. At least I've experienced that in my life. The desire to be rich can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ and is satisfied with spiritual riches rather than material ones. Everything else falls short. Listen to this little poem I found on the Internet. I used to worship money, an idol built of greed. My life revolved around the lump, amassed just for my need. I used to guard it carefully and watch it ebb and flow. Was overjoyed to see it come, but sad to see it go. Charity began at home. My needs were paramount. The poor and needy had to wait. Their poverty didn't count. But then I had a change of life, and I asked Jesus in and kept my wallet firmly closed. My wealth was not a sin. Bit by bit, my hardened heart was softened by his love, and off my greedy, grasping hand, he took the chain-mailed glove. Now I tithe and sow my seed into the kingdom field. A cheerful giver I've become, and heaven is my yield. You know, the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian church. He says, don't walk any longer in the futility of the old life where greediness lies. The old man. He says, be renewed in the spirit and put on the new man. The new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, put on Jesus Christ. Let's put on Christ today. Let's put on Christ. The full armor of God. And watch how he changes our heart. Watch how he takes that greed and turn it into glory. Watch how he takes our lives and transform it into somebody that's constantly in want. To somebody who declares like David in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Contentment can only be found in Christ Jesus. You are a sure Thank you for joining us here today on A Sure Hope. In this series, Pastor Dave has been teaching through the book of Acts. This book follows the journeys of many disciples, but especially of the Apostle Paul. He took several missionary trips to tell others about Jesus, and he acquired many companions along the way. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a traveling missionary? 
he met many people who readily accepted the message he was bringing. In other cities, his life was threatened and he was pushed out as people didn't want to hear about the way. But being a Christian isn't meant to just be an easy road. As Paul's life displayed, you go into it knowing that there will be obstacles that you face. Is it worth it, you might ask? Of course it is. The prize that you'll be rewarded is far more precious than the things of this world. Staying true to Jesus, who gave up everything for you, is the best way you can live your life for Him. We're so glad we got to spend time with you today. A Sure Hope is a ministry out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May, in Cape May, New Jersey. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you on Sunday mornings. Check out AsureHopeRadio.com for service times and directions. Once again, that's AsureHopeRadio.com. And don't worry if you can't make it in person. On the website, you'll notice links to our live stream via Facebook and YouTube. All of these can be accessed through AsureHopeRadio.com. Don't forget to come back next time as Pastor Dave continues to go through the book of Acts again, right here on Assure Hope.